You were listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor David Ige is asking visitors not to come to the islands. Our hospitals are stressed with the surge of COVID cases due to the Delta variant. Joining us live today is Mufi Hanneman, CEO of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. You know, uh, what was your reaction when you heard this call? Well, it was, you know, kind of uh, being bandied about uh, for the last week or so. So every opportunity that I had to uh, express my concern uh, with having such a statement made, uh, and fortunately for us it's not uh, an executive order, it would really hurt uh, our overall efforts uh, to help get people back to work and most importantly try to get to a point where we are attracting the right kind of tourists here to prop the number one industry in terms of providing jobs for our people. So um, I uh, would like in, uh, an opportunity, uh, many of us uh, in the business community, not just on the tourism side specifically, to maybe use this time since it's not an executive order to try to offer other ideas or alternatives for the governor and his staff to mull over, uh, short of uh, asking tourists uh, not to travel to Hawaii this time. We, we did that in 2020 for most of the year. We said now is not the time to come. We said, well, aloha you later. And now that we're going forward and uh, really helping the state's overall economy and exacerbated by the fact that the challenge will even be greater because we're hitting uh, a slowdown season anyway with September and October. There's going to be a drop in tourism arrivals anyway, somewhere along the lines of 14 to 20 percent. Uh, this will only exacerbate that issue. And then compounding that factor <laughs> is many folks who are not going back to work because they were getting the 300-plus up a check from the federal government. That also ends uh, in early September. So there's a lot of complications that arose out of that statement, albeit it was just a statement. But nonetheless, um, you've got uh, the state's uh, marketing agencies uh, all now saying they're going to convey that message out there. And the response that we have gotten so far from those who help us with businesses uh, bring business travel here uh, or tourists in general here uh, is not very positive at this point. They're anticipating more cancellations for people thinking of going elsewhere. I think I saw the latest uh, counts of visitor arrivals of like 24,000. Uh, I imagine as this story gets picked up nationally that you know it will have the intended effect that uh, the governor wants is just to see those numbers uh, reduced. Uh, you know, and I think the bottom line is our hospitals are just about at capacity. Yes, and I certainly appreciate and understand the difficult position he's in with, with the mayors. Uh, but then again, you know, I guess if you look at it, uh, it really is being caused by, uh, fortunately, many of our local people are unvaccinated. Uh, they say that 90% of the people hospitalized statewide with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. So... There's very few tourists in that mix, and uh, and that's why we're having a hard time trying to digest all of this here because we really have tried our best to comply with everything the state has asked us from vaccinating our employees, now pivoting to asking our employees to please get their loved ones at home uh, vaccinated uh, because of the community spread issue that is occurring. So I think more rigorous vaccination policies uh, from the state uh, is the order of the day, and that's what we should all be focusing on doing, especially since now you have FDA approval uh, that it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an approved drug. So uh, that being said, uh, that is what we would like to see more of that. And if the message is to tell people not to come here, then why don't we make it more specific and say to folks, if you are unvaccinated, you are not um, welcome in Hawaii, that's not the kind of visit that we want to see come here, Um, as opposed to just a broad brush message across the board uh, for that traveler who may be vaccinated, uh, is willing to come here, and is not going to stay at an illegal vacation, short-term rental, is going to stay at one of the the uh, proper lodging accommodations and legal accommodations. They're going to pay taxes. They're going to circulate in the economy. They're going to do retail. They're going to do restaurant buying and so forth. And going to mask up and adhere to all the rules and regulations that we have put in place. You know, it is rather ironic that, uh, you know, the governor is uh, uh, putting this message out when the Department of Transportation is set to open up that new concourse at the airport. 
you know, adding, I think, 11, um, possibly up to 11 new gates. Yeah, you know, and that's what I'm saying. It's kind of a, a, a mixed message uh, that, that we're sending out there. And I think right now, just as we have a full court press going on, we totally support the effort to get everyone vaccinated. There should be a full court effort, too, to try to see how we can prop up this economy. It's You know, we're still not there. People might think that, well, you know, this 80, 85 percent occupancy rate occurring. But that's uh, that's a very misleading statistic because it's not uh, totally the kind of traveler that we want to see come here uh, at this time. And most importantly, um, you know, tourism is a pivot point for most of these industries to get back on their feet. And it's going to be difficult coming out of this. I, I know that uh, the folks on Kauai suffered tremendously uh, with a couple of hurricanes that hit them, and some businesses have never been the same. It's going to be no different here uh, in other places of the island, having come through this catastrophic uh, situation that we're facing uh, with, with with the COVID, many businesses are going to continue to struggle to get back on their feet. And, you know, we understand the rules and regulations that continue to come out to restrict uh, large gatherings, to uh, restrict space. That also compounds the problem of trying to get more people back to work uh, in restaurants or who are involved with convention gatherings and the like. So all those things, um, you know, uh, there just needs to be a more balanced approach to doing this where you're ensuring public health and safety, you're doing more to enforce that aspect to get everyone vaccinated, and at the same time not make it uh, too onerous and difficult uh, for businesses who have the responsibility to employ people to get our folks back to work. The plus-up checks end in September. That's that federal $300 plus. It ends in September. Uh, in uh, early September, so I think folks who are, you know, basically relying on that uh, as a means by not having to come back to work now will have to look for work. And what do we do if we're not having the, the tourism numbers uh, to be able to support uh, the hiring of additional workers? We're already having a labor shortage trying to hire what we needed for the summer months. And right. So well, we are in a we are in difficult. a tough time right now, but we certainly appreciate your uh, t- uh, time with us. Uh, uh, Mufi, and uh, we'll see how things play out in the next few weeks. Well, appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, to share my manala today. And yeah, we're all in this together. If I can make one last message, please, if you're not vaccinated, please do it. If not for yourself, think of your family, think of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Please go get vaccinated. All right. Thanks so much. That was former Honolulu Mayor and current Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association CEO Mufi Hannon talking to us about the governor's message to travelers. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check focuses on the decision by City Prosecutor uh, Steve Alm not to pursue the case against three officers ac- accused of shooting a minor while in pursuit of a robbery suspect. Reporter Christina Jedra has been tracking the story and joins us today. Hi, Christina. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is uh, the news conference that uh, uh, our prosecutor held yesterday afternoon. Yeah, so this was the first time that uh, prosecuting attorney Steve Alm addressed the results of the preliminary hearing last week um, in which three officers um, were um, found not to, the judge determined they would not be going to trial for their actions on April 5th when I remember Psychap um, was shot dead. Um, and so Alm basically said that he was disappointed by the outcome, um, but that he accepted it and that he didn't plan to pursue the prosecution of these officers any further. He said he could if he wanted to, um, but that's not a path that he's going to take. However, he did have some criticisms for the Honolulu Police Department and also the judge in the case. Right. And you don't often uh, hear uh, people criticize the judge, but Alm was a judge himself. Right, which um, I spoke to Neil Milner, a former political science professor at UH, yesterday about that. And he said maybe the fact that Alm was a judge kind of um, makes him feel that he can call out what he sees as a bad ruling from another judge. Um, but certainly it is unusual to see a prosecutor do that. Um, basically, he uh, you know, said that he was frustrated that the judge wouldn't let 
um, his deputy prosecutor introduced an expert witness in the case that he thought of, would have been favorable to the prosecution. Um, and obviously he was, um, you know, disappointed in the outcome. Um, he didn't agree with it. He did also criticize the fact that the officers sat in the room together and wrote up their reports. That's right. Um, one of the witnesses in the case, Officer Chanel Price, said that um, she, as a witness in the case, was in the same room with the officers who were charged, or at the, I guess at that point under investigation. Um, and they all wrote their reports in the same squad room and that there were other officers there, um, perhaps union representatives. And Alm said at the press conference yesterday that that was inappropriate um, and that never should have happened. Um, I did ask a couple folks about that yesterday. Um, Mita Chesney Lind, a UH criminologist, agreed with Alm that said, you know, saying that that's inappropriate to allow the officers to line up their reminiscences. Ken Lawson, co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project, also agreed that it taints the whole investigation. Um, however, I did speak with a retired HPD lieutenant who said there's really nothing nefarious or unusual about that practice. He said, you know, it's been going on for years. Officers just want to make sure that their stories are accurate about, you know, time and place, what happened when. Um, and he said he, he never saw anyone say, okay, you know, this is the story that we're, we're going to be pushing. Um, he said, you know, he said officers are telling the truth. I thought it was interesting that Alm said that he believed what the video showed, the, 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 uh, the, um, right. the cameras that the officers wear. Right. Alm pointed out yesterday that um, there were inconsistencies between what the officers wrote in their reports and what he saw in their body camera footage. And this was discussed in the preliminary hearing as well. The defense attorney said, well, you know, just because it, you don't see it on camera doesn't mean that the officer didn't see it. It doesn't have a 360 view of everything that they saw in that moment. Um, but Alm said, you know, he really trusted that video evidence, and that's um, what he put weight in during the prosecution. And he said, we chose to believe our eyes. Yeah, I'd be curious to see, you know, uh, really what the community thinks, because I'm, I'm sure it's split on, you know, whether they think he did the right thing by standing up and uh, uh, go, uh, pressing charges, uh, or, you know, there is that group that, that believes that he was wrong. Right. It's definitely been a divisive subject in the community, but Alm really stood by his actions yesterday. He said he still felt that it was the right thing to do. Um, he's letting it go now because he said he's done kind of all that he believes is, is reasonable at this point. Um, but he says he has no regrets. He's not worried about the implications for his political career. He was asked a question about that. Um, and he he dismissed any suggestion that he pursued this case for um you know, to raise his profile or anything like that. Um, but he said the court system has spoken. He understands that. He accepts it. And the prosecution of those officers is over. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Starting October 1st, families across the country receiving SNAP benefits will see a record boost of about $36 more a month. SNAP stands for a Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. You might know it better by its old name, food stamps. More people are on the program than ever. It grew by more than 30% during the pandemic here in Hawaii. Brian Donahoe of the Hawaii Department of Human Services told HBR's Savannah Harriman-Pote that Hawaii residents could actually see more aid than most. That's slightly different for the state of Hawaii. We are so pleased by the changes that USDA has announced. They will be effective October 1st, and it's a reevaluation of the of the Thrifty Food Plan, which is basically the structure for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits. And in using the $36 a month average number across the United States, that is, again, average across the United States per person. However, the Department of Agriculture also did make some changes that are specific to high-cost states. And in the state of Hawaii, for a single individual, the increase is actually $97. And so for the maximum benefit for a 
single individual in the state of Hawaii on the Thrifty Food Plan, if they have no income and are getting the maximum benefit, formerly would be $375. Under the new plan, come October 1st, with the change, it will be 472 Wow, that's a much more impressive sum. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, and it's long overdue. This is the largest increase in this program in 45 years. It's a 26% increase for a single individual, which is significant. I want to step back a little bit and look at SNAP recipients throughout the pandemic. Based on the numbers for the Department of Human Services, in July 2021, there are about 50,000 more SNAP recipients in Hawaii than there were in July 2019. And that number of overall recipients has been steadily trending up throughout the course of the pandemic. Can you speak to what might be causing this increase in people applying for SNAP benefits? Well, Savannah, in in some regards, we are as surprised as most because on, on the surface, we see signs that the economy is improving and therefore uh, folks that may have had their hours reduced or eliminated entirely, we had hopes that the economy would be improving and therefore we would see a bit of a decline in the number of recipients in the for the program. Um, but we're not seeing it. And so I think part of it points to those individuals that are underemployed and, and their hours have been reduced, and so they still qualify from a financial perspective. And keep in mind, though, that um, if they are qualifying for SNAP, they typically aren't qualifying for unemployment insurance benefits. Most of those are counted dollar for dollar in terms of income. So what it tells me is that they have rolled off of the UI rolls and remain on my rolls for SNAP benefits. Hmm. Yeah, I I wonder what that means just for your offices and its infrastructure. You are working with almost 200,000 monthly recipients of SNAP at this point. How did the Department of Human Services have to modify its infrastructure during the pandemic to ensure that people continued receiving benefits? Well, Savannah, we did a few things. First and foremost, what we realized is at a time when the pandemic was was frankly brand new, we realized that our ability to serve clients safely, safely I say, for clients and our staff together, um, we weren't able to do that through the normal lobby encounters. In the past, about half of our service to our recipients was done in a lobby setting. But we were no longer serving people through the lobbies, and we needed to come up with electronic ways of doing so, either on the phone or through an electronic uh, application. And what we realized very quickly, prior to pandemic, we did not have a web-based application. And with the assistance of a local IT partner, we, um, in a very quick period of time, in fact, just a matter of a few weeks, we came up with an online application. That online application has continued to be massaged and redeveloped and refined to the point now where we've taken in nearly 150,000 applications through that. We are servicing our ongoing clients with their eligibility reviews through that same website. It's the Public Assistance Information System, PAIS. That has proven to be key. We've done a few other things, too, um, with respect to a statewide approach to our workload management. Uh, We always have been based on statewide in many respects, but we really redoubled our efforts to make sure that we were leveraging every single bit of capacity that we had through all of the neighbor island processing centers as well as those on Oahu. And um, I'm I'm proud to say, and knock on wood, I'm hoping I'm not jinxing myself by saying this, but we ran into one period of time during the height of the pandemic where we, were, where we were at about 30 days lead time, but only for a couple weeks. And then we brought it back down to now most of the time during the pandemic, we were between three, five, seven days to disposition on initial applications. And, and uh, now we've 
taken back a bunch of the work. The food and nutrition services folks at the Department of Agriculture had a bunch of waivers that helped states process and allowed us to extend certification periods. They, they then um, retracted some of those, so now we have additional work to process. As a result, uh, about a month ago, our workload effectively doubled, but our lead days still stay down in at about 8, 10 days. Mm. So we have a lot of people, if they are applying now, we're able to process their application within a week or so, and federal mandate says we have to process in a month, but we think that's far too long. We we try our very best to process same day whenever possible. Hmm. Would you say it's fair that someone applying for SNAP benefits for the first time today would be able to start receiving those benefits by next week? I think so. I'd have to look at the data, but Savannah, yeah, absolutely. Last week, our numbers showed on initial application, the averages were somewhere around six or seven days. That's great. <laughs> it's not something we've heard so much of during the course of the pandemic, for sure. Um, yeah. Another new pro- program that I know the Department of Human Services has rolled out, and I understand that this is present in other states, but it's new to our state, is the summer PEBT 438 per child benefit that accounts for meals during the break while kids are out of school, they're at home, and families need to feed them out of pocket. Yes. During the pandemic, we had all different rounds of pandemic EBT payments because uh, it was was very clear that for many families and for many children, the free and reduced price lunch program represented a singularly important meal for many of these children. And then when school closed, then they were going without. So... The Department of Agriculture also was was very quick to offer up the opportunity for states that had the ability to connect with their departments of education and use the data in a way that helped distribute the funds. By the way, not all states were able to do so. Um, The Department of Human Services here in Hawaii and my division worked very closely with the Department of Education and put together... Um, all of the interfaces, and it was a, it, frankly, it was a really big job, Savannah, and I'm, I'm very pleased that we were able to do that. The benefit to our residents and to the children is huge, so we're very pleased that, that the program continues. So just to be clear, because there is some uncertainty surrounding how the next couple weeks will look in schools as well as workplaces as case counts remain high due to the Delta variant, is there a program, an equivalent to the summer PEBT, that is in place or in development that the Department of Human Services could enact if all of a sudden school uh, students find themselves at home full-time again? Yes, absolutely. That's also part of the regulation within the PEBT program, depending on what happens with respect to a disaster being declared or emergency proclamations on the part of the governor. Um, the intention is as to respond as quickly as possible. So absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Brian, I know we're running out of time. So I just wanted to ask for any other thoughts that you have that come to mind that you think people need to understand, as well as what someone would need if they want to apply for SNAP benefits today. What's the first place they should go and what information should they have? So the the best place to go is the Department of Human Services website, um, humanservices.hawaii.gov. And um, that the first place they can go, it will, it will let them know exactly what programs that are either income maintenance programs or food benefit programs or anything relating to child care, any of the services and programs that we offer. Um, it will also point them to the online application. And while I can't encourage someone directly to apply um, online saying that they're going to be eligible, I can absolutely say that if someone believes that they might be eligible, the only way they're going to know is if they do apply and allow my eligibility staff to determine whether or not they do qualify. 
So give it a shot. (laughs) Yeah, give it a shot, Savannah. That was Brian Donahoe, Administrator of the Benefit, Employment, and Support Services Division of Human Services. He spoke with our Savannah Harriman-Pote about the increase in SNAP benefits. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring community-driven pop-up installations across the museum. HonoluluMuseum.org. In many people's minds, HPR is community. And one way we facilitate that is through Generation Listen. It's an active group of younger HPR listeners who share a curiosity about the world and a passion for creating a more informed and engaged public. Generation Listen is a conscious movement where we hang out, exchange ideas, and smart conversation. You can join our group of curious types and be a part of our journey. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from T. Oki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years, learn more at tokitrading.com. The U.S. Army is proposing to renew its lease of nearly 30,000 acres of land from the state. Uh, it leased it nearly 60 years ago. And that lease includes 6,300 acres across Kahuku Training Area, Poamoho Training Area, and Makua Military Reservation on Oahu. It also includes 23,000 acres at Pohakaloa Training Area on uh, Hawaii Island. The military first obtained the land in 1964 for a dollar. That lease expires in 2029. Why is this land important to the military? Should it be returned to the state? The conversations Russell Subiano set out to learn more. The history of the U.S. military in Hawaii is a long and complicated one. American warships were sent to defend Hawaii's independence during a five-month occupation by the British in 1843. In 1893, after Queen Liliu Okalani was deposed, 162 armed American sailors and Marines landed on Oahu to support the new government. Today, our state is home to 11 bases, and the military is one of our largest employers. That's some of the sounds of U.S. service members training at Pohakuloa Training Area on Hawaii Island. At nearly 110,000 acres, it's the largest U.S. military installation in our islands and in the Pacific region. Of the 30,000 acres the Army is attempting to retain, the largest parcel is the 23,000 acres at Pohakuloa. I wanted to understand the importance of that tract of land, so I reached out to Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Cronin, the commander of U.S. Army Garrison Pohakuloa Training Area. I just you know, want to start with saying that the training that the individual soldiers who come here to train and, and not the Army and the broader joint force, when they come here to train either individually as a service or in combined operations, is really important to the overall readiness of our nation's military and the joint force. And the reason why it's important here is because the size of, of the area where we can train at Oakaloa it's the largest live fire range in Hawaii, and it can support full-scale combined arms training from the individual soldier to the, to the squad to the brigade, which is 3,500 soldiers or more level. And those, those units can, can maneuver at the same time on the ground, and then they can also incorporate fires to support their maneuver. And what that does is it replicates the training here replicates the conditions that those soldiers will find in combat. And the gold standard for training is to get as, as, as close as possible as you can to the conditions that you'll find in combat. And I think that's what we, we, we come very close to doing here at Polkalo, and, and we endeavor to get closer and closer every day. And 
so I think of the young lieutenant who's a platoon leader leading a formation of 30 to 40 of our nation's men and women, or the young sergeant who's a squad leader leading nine, nine soldiers. And the practice they get here when they come here, the practice they get here leading their soldiers, leading their formation, because of our ability to host all those different types of maneuver and, and firing from the mortar to the art- artillery piece, all the way to the helicopter, all the way up to the to the fixed wing jet, closely replicates the conditions of combat, and that makes these soldiers and other members of the joint force as combat ready as possible to deploy and fight and win our nation's wars when called. The land that the Army has initiated the process to retain the 23,000 acres is what I classify as as the connective tissue the greater Pawkaloa training area. And what this connective tissue is, it's centrally located in Pawkaloa, and it contains utilities that support our mission, critical infrastructure that supports our mission. It contains some of the maneuver land that I just described earlier and, some, and our key training facilities. And these, these facilities, including 79 firing points, a battle area complex, an airstrip for drones where we can practice drone operations all contributes to that overall training picture that I described, which contributes to the combat readiness of our nation's military. I understand the combat readiness part of it. What about the position within the Pacific? Does having the total amount of land available to the Army, does that help bolster our ability to keep our, our country secure from potential enemies in this region of the world? Yes, I say I would say yes because central adversaries, you know, they, they they look at readiness and they look at the training that the army and the larger the broader joint force conducts, and that has a deterrent value. Our adversaries are always watching, and you know, our, our leaders have have commented many times that you know the the Indo-Pacific region is the most critical region for our nation's security and prosperity now and going into the future. What would you say to someone who says that the 23,000 acres at, at Pohakaloa training area that the Army is looking to continue leasing, what would you say to them if they were to say that it should be returned to the state so that it can be preserved or put to use for Hawaii residents? You know, I would say, you know, we're following the, the land retention process and there, there's an opportunity for the public to provide comments. To that process, so I would encourage those those comments and welcome those comments. So it you know paints the paints the entire picture. But I would say from from my perspective, you know, having you know served in the military for 18 years and and having led our nation's men and women in combat situations, that the land that we're proposing to retain and how that land contributes to the mission that I'm charged with here at Pokaloa, which is ensuring that our nation's men and women who come here to train achieve the highest level of combat readiness is important. And I would want to have a kind of conversation along those lines that the young soldier, the young service member who comes here to train from the private level all the way up to echelon, they're as prepared as possible when they're called into, into harm's way, they can fight and win our nation's war and come back home to their family. But not everyone agrees that the U.S. military should retain the 30,000 acres. Retired Colonel Ann Wright served in the Army and the Army Reserves for nearly three decades. She was a U.S. diplomat for 16 years in various embassies around the world. She's a Honolulu resident, and she talked to me about why she believes the military should return the land to the state. I'm very well aware of the national security concerns of our country. However, I'm also very well aware that the U.S. military generally, you know, it wants as much as it can get on anything, whether it's weapons or land or whatever. And the consideration of local populations, their culture, their history, is not of great concern to the military, although they will mouth the words that they're concerned, but their actions do not demonstrate that they really are concerned. And these lands that we're talking about now, the nearly 30,000 lands of coming up for really 
releasing in, in 2029 are not critical to the national security plan for the United States. These are lands that can easily be returned to the state of Hawaii, to the Hawaiian people, without any damage to our national security. What would you say to those who do feel these lands are important to the defense of the country and important to keeping soldiers sharp? Well, there's plenty of land that's going to be available to the military, even if these uh, 30,000 acres are not released. There's 100,000 acres that are at Palakaloa. There are thousands of other acres that are up at Schofield Barracks. There are thousands of acres that are over at the Kaneohe Marine Base. There are thousands of acres that are at Pearl Harbor. It's not like the not leasing these 30,000 acres means that the U.S. military is being kicked out of Hawaii at all. And the fact that, you know, it got a, it got a free deal 60, you know, 65 years ago. And it's time that, you know, a rational look is made at what is really necessary for military exercises. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you know about the financial part? You said the military got a free deal. What are they paying to be able to lease these lands? Well, I don't know what they are paying to lease other other parts of the huge military network that we have. I mean, most of the of the military bases were kind of given to the federal government at some stage in Hawaii's history. I mean, the, the occupation of of Hawaii by the United States government, where essentially the federal government just told state leaders, we have to have this, we have to have that. And certainly World War II was a key part of it all after the the Japanese attack here on Pearl Harbor. Everything was up for grabs to defend from another attack, but that was what now, 75 years ago, and still the military retains a huge amount, plus what has been added through these leasing agreements. So it's not like uh, the federal government has spent a lot of money to retain these. And when you look at the finite amount of land that Hawaii has, this is a great portion of land of Oahu and Big Island. And whether or not it should always be that way is something I think we in the community are challenging right now. When you were at the public scoping meeting, what was your sense of the sentiment of the people? We listened on Zoom, and I did not hear one comment that said the military should retain control of these lands. It was like everybody that was on the call was saying, no, it's time to return these lands to to Hawaii. And a variety of rationale was given, you know, whether it was from the environmental degradation of the lands, the endangerment of species, the destruction of cultural properties. And uh, another part of it was we don't really need it for our national security, as kind of what I was talking about before, that, that the U.S. needs to be looking more on diplomatic ways to resolve situations rather than using our U.S. military. If these lands are returned to the state, do you have an idea of the time it will take to clear them and to make them useful? Or is that something that we'll, we'll just, we'll never get back full use? Well, each one of them is a little bit different. For example, the 23,000 acres that are up in Puakaloa, my understanding is those are areas that have been used primarily for administrative purposes and have not been any part of the impact areas of that military training area. So those 23,000 acres could be returned for public use pretty quickly. On Makua, it depends on which part of that leased area it is. And I'm not really familiar with exactly. You know, up in the upper valley, that's where a lot of the ordinance still is and where uh, when you go in for these cultural access days, the military itself says, we can't go up there because we don't even know where all this stuff is. And on the other two locations, neither one of them, as I understand it, have been used as firing areas. They've been used more for maneuver areas, but I don't believe that they've been in impact areas, so they could be returned to public use pretty quickly. That was retired Colonel Ann Wright and Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Cronin talking to our Russell Subiono. The public comment period for the Army's proposal to retain its land leases closes on September 1st. For links, head out to our conversation page on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
Support for HPR comes from Kumukahua Theater. In Hashtag Howley Boyfriend, five high school besties reunite 15 years later to sing karaoke and wrestle with secrets, September 2nd to the 19th. Virtual tickets at kumukahua.org. been about a week since the Kona Ironman announced it would put off the competition to February of next year. That no doubt disappointed athletes training for the event. Lori McCartney can relate. The head of the Hawaii Bicycling League had thought she would be heading to Ironman 70.3 in New Zealand this fall. The event had been canceled in November 2020 and it was to resume this year. But she just got word now that it's been kicked off till 2022. McCartney's main focus is on the major fundraiser for the Bicycling League that is scheduled to happen September 26. The Century Ride is now dubbed the Century Challenge, and McCartney is hopeful it can still happen even with his temporary month-long restrictions that were handed down by the mayor yesterday, reducing large gatherings. For the Bicycling League, the last time that we did an event, as we have always done them, was in 2019, the Honolulu Century Ride. So we're going on two years of being flexible and adapting to the situation. We know that people want to bike, and the events are really important fundraisers for us. We're a nonprofit. We're the only bicycle advocacy organization on Oahu. And so, you know, we struggle. And how is it that we keep people safe, the participants and volunteers? And then how do we put something on for people that they're going to want to participate that gets them outside biking and staying healthy by staying active. And initially, when we were talking during the pandemic and, you know, what a challenge this was for these sporting events, you know, I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, on the bicycle, you're nicely spaced from the next person. Absolutely. Bicycling is, even if you're riding in a group, which right now I think people are choosing not to do that so much, But even riding in a group, you're at a distance and you have air moving past you. You're not inside, you're not in stagnant air, and you're active. When you stop, if people stop for a rest or whatever, we've noticed that most bicyclists then will put on a mask and or they'll social distance. I think that's one of the things over the last 18 months where people are adapting their behavior to what helps them stay safe. So how are you going to pull off your uh, century challenge? So our century challenge this year is going to be a little bit different as everything is, but we feel people are sort of tired of virtual. You know, when you say virtual, they're saying, well, we've done so many virtual things. We want to have some of the aspects of a regular event. We like seeing other people out doing it. We like the idea of having some support. We like the idea of having, you know, some swag. So we try to say, okay, let's put everything on one day instead of having it over a month or a week, as people will tend to do in virtual events. Let's get everybody sort of sharing the experience of a day out on their bicycle, but let's not put them all in the same place. Let's let some of them, if they want to ride the century ride route, go ahead. We have some GPS routes that they can use, but I was just out riding in Kapolei, riding a route out there to test it for people to ride out on that side. So our thought is, do it on one day. Everybody can share the experience of biking on a certain day. We'll provide support to them. We'll provide some little challenges. And we'll make it an event that can be fun, but not not traditional and as safe as we can possibly make it. So then riders will be able to choose their routes, and they may run into their friends out there. (laughs) But it won't be a large group like it normally is that goes through East Honolulu and and around the island? I would expect that people will see more bicycles out on that day, but the bicycles won't all necessarily be going the same place on the same route. So I think that's what we're looking at is we like the idea and we think bicyclists and anybody doing an activity like the idea of sharing with people. Even if you're watching the same TV show at home, the idea of talking about what you did and sharing that day with other people is something that we think we can provide but helping to keep people safe and helping them do the event that's going to suit them best is giving them the options. It's really sort of interesting now. The technology allows you to provide routing for people on their smartphone, and so they can get turn-by-turn directions, audio directions. So what we've done is we've created a whole series of these routes for people to choose from. 
And if they want to, they can use them, but they don't have to. But it's one of the benefits of signing up. So the writers then just need to mentally be in that space where there's not going to be an official start or finish line, that kind of thing. Uh, but you will have your support stations, your, your first aid, uh, water stations, that kind of thing. Yes. We are going to have a start and finish area, but it's not a mass start. So we welcome people to come to the bandstand at Kapiolani Park if that's where they want to ride, which is where we usually typically be. And if they want, they can ride through a arch and then head on their way. But there's no set time to do that. So we'll be taking a look at it for the people who want to ride out towards Waikai or even on to the North Shore. We'll be moving them along if they come. So they can ride through. Sometimes people like to ride through and get a picture and ride through on the way back and just celebrate whatever their ride was. But we don't think everybody's going to do that. But we think there will be some people that do. We observed with the marathon last year that people ran the marathon route, even though the marathon didn't happen. So that's where we're thinking there will be some people that will want to replicate it. We saw that for our metric century. Some people said just hearing the chatter, nothing that we organized, but that people were saying, let's go ride that route because it's something they've done for years and years and years. I'm looking at your website and it says permit pending. How does that work? Yes. So we have permits for some of the parks and the way that the permitting works right now is that the permitting is we have to share with them our mitigation plan and how we're going to be keeping people safe. We have some permits that are final and some permits that aren't quite, and we'll see. You know, we just have to be flexible. If we don't get the permit, then we won't be there, but we will be able to provide support for people in a way. But we feel pretty confident, and some of them we have, but we don't want to make, we don't want to overcommit to people at at this point when we're not 100% sure of uh, the permitting. Yeah, when we last talked, we were um, chatting with Jim Barrow about the Honolulu Marathon and about the challenges of being a, a race director, right? I mean, there's so many details and so much planning that goes into one of these events way ahead of time. And it is a challenge when you see the larger events across the globe fall by the wayside just because of where COVID is and the restrictions wherever they happen to be. Mm-hmm in whatever country they're running, you know, these events. Right. And your counterparts across the country, are they pretty much doing the same thing? It's very similar because uh, every state is taking their own position and, you know, what they think is right for them to do. There have been Ironman races happening all across the country and around the world. Canceling an event in New Zealand that's more than a year and a half out is very New Zealand. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there was an Ironman race in Florida several months ago, and I see a lot of these events coming up and people participating in them. So it's one of those that seems like the decision's very local. When you get to something like our event, the Century Ride or Ironman or the Marathon, the international participants play a big role too. And if international participants are an important part of your event and they can't come, like Japanese can't come, but you take out that many participants and then the different sponsorship and different support that you get that comes with them, that makes it also financially challenging. We're a nonprofit. You know, we have to say, okay, well, what can we do that's going to have some kind of positive financial benefit for us without that big participation? If I recall the last time I wrote the century, I mean, you had a fair amount of Japanese visitors. And of course, when you get to an event like the Honolulu Marathon, where a huge amount of the runners are from Japan or from overseas, and then you have all the big sponsors. Yeah, it really does uh, change the picture. Yes, because there's a lot of things that are very expensive in putting on an event, and that comes into the decision-making also. Our event, one of the reasons we're not calling it a century ride and we're not having one route is we're not closing any streets. And it's very expensive to close streets, but we can find routes for people and disperse people around so that we can give them a safe experience from the standpoint of biking. We're not taking up roads. We're riding as if we're normally riding. Uh, And since most people are local, then they understand the roads. They know where they're riding. They know where they are comfortable riding and not riding. So that's a little bit different animal than if we have a thousand people coming in from another country where this is a brand new place for them to bike and their expectations might be different than what they actually see. 
you see it from both sides, right? As, I mean, as a participant mm-hmm. and as an organizer. But that must be just so hard when you train, right? Because usually for a competition, you train peak at a certain time. and It's very difficult. It's very difficult to train. It's happened to me before where events were canceled and I was like three weeks away and and you've already you've trained for seven, eight, nine months, and then you're ready to go and mentally and physically and everything ready to go, and then it gets canceled. It just takes the wind out of your sails because you've worked so hard to be ready for it. And so I can only imagine the people that qualified for Ironman on Kona, which is the world championship, which is people around the world are training and racing to be the top of their age group, to win their age group be able to qualify to come to Kona. Now it's postponed, so that means, oh, now i got to train another five months or something. <laughs> and that's uh, part of the equation, too. But it's an incredible honor. I don't know if people in Hawaii really understand how big a deal it is to be able to race the Ironman World Championship in Kona. I raced around the world in Ironmans, and I really came to understand that much better as I saw people in faraway places like Brazil or Mexico or France working really hard to try to be able to make it here. This is not just an Ironman. This is the Super Bowl of Ironmans. And so there's a lot of people that have a lot of emotion and a lot of hard work put into it. All right. But your event, the Bicycling League uh, Century Challenge, will still go on in a month. Yes, September 26th. It's a Sunday. It'll be a great time. And it is a fundraiser for the Hawaii Bicycling League. It's our most important fundraiser. And we need help. We need the support. It's been a tough couple of years for us. So so we're hoping people will support us. Come out and ride. Go ride five miles. But join us. We'll have some swag for you and support you. And you'll have fun and be out in the, out biking with uh, lots of other people. That was the Hawaii Bicycling League's Executive Director, Lori McCarney, talking about the fundraising Century Challenge coming up in September. Well, that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow we hear about the hiccups in the bill to allow counties to collect hotel room taxes. What do you think? Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.